the highest status thing you could do as a parent in the Bay Area five years ago was send your kid to one of the super elite private schools. Now, like it's at least as high status or maybe higher status to like have your kids in one of these super elite homeschool pots. Elon Musk, you know, famously created a new school for his kids, which was literally located in a, in a rocket factory. There are some very prominent Silicon Valley people who have created micro schools, pods. And so if the upper, upper tippy top of the socioeconomic stratum starts to do that, and that's the highest class thing to do, then you could imagine a future system in which, you know, more and more parents kind of throughout society are like, oh, like I, there actually is an escape hatch. Being on the traditional track actually is not the route to the highest status. There's this other route and I should maybe be more creative and thinking about the trajectory that my kids have, including ultimately the question of whether they go to college. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investor or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. Hey folks, welcome back. This is the third and final round of the Mark and Ben show on the topic of the the, the troubles at the at the universities. For those of you who haven't heard the two previous episodes, the first one was about the troubles at the universities. The second episode was about uh, potential fixes of the current system and also potential entrepreneurial opportunities that are kind of spinning out and, and, and thinking about new approaches to things. And then this third episode is the Q&A episode. So we have a ton of really good questions we have solicited on the X platform, and we are excited to uh, get into those. And then this will tie off this topic for us for a while. But the feedback so far has been really good, including from a lot of our friends who actually work in the space, including at, at some of the top universities. So we're hopefully we're, we're contributing somewhat to the, to, to, the, to the current discussions. So we'll just jump right in. Parker Pruitt asks, given that there are some presidential vacancies at notable universities, and I should pause there and say that I believe that Harvard, uh, Stanford, Penn, and Yale are all currently searching for new presidents. Yeah. which is remarkable to have four, four of the top institutions simultaneously searching. So this is a pressing issue both for those institutions, but also for the, the entire category. How would you select a new president to address the various challenges you've defined? And let me let me just expand on that. As Ben, you and I talked about last time mm-hmm. on the last podcast, you know, the, the challenge of running one of these institutions is just the sheer number of constituencies. Yeah. But I think we, we, we tallied up 15 or 20 distinct constituencies. And we, ta- we talked a lot last time about how a leader of any organization can possibly deal with that kind of situation. And so, Ben, if you were running, if you were running one of these searches at one of these top institutions, like what would be the what would be the what would be the plan? Yeah. So, you know, there's a term in the old business literature that they, you know, from like the 80s when I was a kid called a change agent. Do you remember this term, Mark? A change sure. agent was ba- basically the way to think about it is. You know, if you have kind of an organization that needs, you know, some new innovation or this or that or the other, then that's one thing. But if like the whole system needs to be redone because it's broken, then you need this thing called a change agent, which is somebody who doesn't care about, you know, often characterized like they don't care about any of the kind of normal relationships and being liked or these kinds of things normal. They just are like hell bent on getting from the old system to a system that works. And often kind of these people become so intolerable to the old people in the system that either, you know, like most of the old people go or, you know, the new person goes, <laughs> the change agent goes. So it, it's a complicated thing. But they, you know, they, there have been kind of many examples in business where this happens. And often, I mean, <laughs> 
interesting. Elon at, at, at X is probably a change agent and, you know, people really hate it in a way, but he's certainly changed, you know, like it or not, it's a completely different thing than before he got there. There's a famous case study on Continental Airlines when they were going broke, when they were going bankrupt, where they brought in a CEO who's kind of changed everything. I think Bob Pittman, when he went into Six Flags Amusement Park, was that kind of guy where he kind of changed the whole thing. And, you know, it's, it's everything from the culture on down. So how everything works is up for grabs when you have one of these people. So I think you'd be looking for somebody with those characteristics, or I think that I would. So, um, you know, it, it would be, if I was looking for somebody to kind of run their university, it would be somebody who would go like, you know, the value proposition for students is absolutely insane. And, you know, we've got to cut the cost by 80%. And I have a plan to do that. And, you know, we're going to, and, and, you know, and, 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 like, but somebody who's walking in like that, as opposed to somebody who's coming in this great university <laughs> that's been here since 1790 and, you know, whatever Alexander Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton studied here, or, you know, whoever studied there and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, that kind of reverence is probably bad in a situation like this because what that tradition is and what it's become there's just too big a gap now. And, you know, it really does need a major revision because, you know, as we discussed last time, if you continue on the current trajectory, you know, you're going to have a place where it costs, you know, a million dollars for a four-year four degree, which is just, you know, it's very hard to earn that back. You know, like, like I said, you know, even if you work for Andreessen Horowitz, that's not easy to earn back. That's a hard, and there's interest, and so you're you're sitting yeah. on a you're sitting on a compounding, you're sitting on a compounding problem. So you alluded to this, but I'll just ask the question directly. A change agent that comes into any organization, they sort of face this thing where there's going to be a lot of internal resistance, as you said. Kind of the people who have been there, the incumbent, the incumbent kind of power, you know, players at that place are gonna are gonna basically resist. And so then there's like this sort of you know game theory thing that plays out, which is can the change agent basically roll through and probably get rid of those people faster than they can basically destroy him or her on the launch pad? Yeah, um, yeah that, that, that that's that's always a real question, right? And but I, I do think that right the 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 trustees hire the president at a university, so I think that what you would need is agreement among the trustees to back the change agent, you know, before you ever made the hire in order to pull it off. Because, right, if, if you know, whoever, the administrators, the deans, the faculty could go around the, the kind of president to the trustees and say, hey, this is crazy, and the trustees cave, then that would be that. So, I mean, look, and this presumes that you kind of believe <laughs> our conversation in the first two episodes that there needs to be a major change. I think, you know, most trustees at these universities that we've spoken to, and we've now spoken to a few, don't feel like the situation is as extreme as we painted it probably. And so the likelihood of them being able to either bring on or tolerate somebody who's got that kind of attitude at this point, probably won't. I mean, in this cycle, you know, I wonder, but, but that's what I would do. You know, that's what I would advocate for. 
Yeah. And then, you know, what if somebody said, look, like, yes, there are problems, but, you know, look, there's like a lot of constraints on what we can do. And there's a lot of good people, you know, in the system. And and, and there's a lot of, you know, there's like, you know, there's some shared sense of mission and goals around teaching and research and so forth. And like, you know, boy, Ben, actually, what we need is kind of the opposite of what you're saying is like, we, we need a conciliator and a diplomat. And so yeah, we need somebody. Everybody to, like, right. Yeah. Well, and yeah. well, let me start before that even just like take some of the tension out, take some of the conflict out, you know, kind of find common ground you know, kind of, you know, build trust, you know, get, you know, sort of identify shared values that you can kind of rally around. And then, yeah, drive, drive towards some sort of convergence of agreement, but like fundamentally, you know, basically be a, be a Henry Kissinger type as compared to a, like a Jack Welch type, yeah, um, like a diplomat. With, with that, like how, how would you, if somebody said they, the, the new person they were bringing in was, was one of these, you know, with one of these places was like that, like how, how would you score the, you know, what sort of what happens, what happens next? Well, look, I mean, I think it, it really depends on, you know, the diagnosis, right? So like the way we diagnose the problem that won't change much, you know, on our very long laundry list of issues that we kind of went through over the last four hours. On the other hand, if the diagnosis was, hey, somehow we got to the point where campuses are you know, which we designed to be extremely tolerant, have become extremely intolerant of various points of view and Jews and whatever else, you know, has come up. And what we need is somebody to rebuild tolerance and everything else is fine, you know, like student debt, whatever, you know, the government will take care of that. We'll forgive the debt and this and, and the other. And you know, the the fact that the world has changed and information is available. Well, the, you know, these are not really problems. If you if you came from that perspective, then, you know, somebody who is a great kind of conciliatory, kind of diplomatic, you know, Henry Kissinger sort of character, you know, could, I guess, potentially solve that problem. I mean, I, I'm a little skeptical of that because I do think at least, you know, among a pretty big contingent in the university, it's a religion. It's not a, it's not a point of view. It's a belief system that requires faith and which is why it cannot be argued. And so I think that kind of person would run into trouble, you know, against the religious zealots of the university. But, but I think that that's what would get you to that idea, I think. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Let's go. Yeah, let's go. Let's shift topics. Let's uh, talk about sort of the, the the education and credentialing you know components that we talked about a lot in the last two episodes. So let's start with a, a very straightforward, fundamental question from uh, M.T. Chillen: Why do we think it still takes four years to fully bake an undergraduate student? What does that seemingly arbitrary uh, timeline come from, and how do we get away from the temporal packaging, which is a great uh, uh, phrase uh, of undergraduate undergraduate education? Yeah, that that. I, I think that's like a fundamentally important question. And this is, you know, what Lambda School and, and, and some others are kind of tackling. I'll let you, you probably know more about the origin of the four years than I do. But I, I look, I think in the modern world, it's a pretty weird idea that you would spend four years getting educated and then the rest of your life working with no more education. <laughs> right. Like if you think, and we talked about this a little before, but like, you know, at least in, in our field, that's absurd. But I think really in most fields, you know, you know, both you and I have been doing a lot of reading on foreign policy lately. And I think one of the problems that, with foreign policy is that people have who are in the business have 
got an education that's extremely dated. You know, the world has really changed. Warfare has changed. Power has changed. Economics have changed, you know, since the kind of Cold War negotiations or whatever they studied in school. And there's not like a constant refresh of, of the knowledge. And, you know, I think arguably a, a better system is, okay, you finish your 12 years of education in elementary and high school, at least in the United States. And then, you know, you maybe get a year that bridges you from that to knowledge in a field where you want to go into that kind of work environment and then go from there. For most people, you know, like, of course, if you're, you know, a super genius and a physics scholar, then, you know, maybe the, the full, not only the four years, but a PhD program is the right thing to do. But I think for most college students, probably over 95% of college students are there to prepare themselves for the workforce. And a four-year degree to do that seems a little misplaced in, in a world where the rate of change is so high, right? And we used yeah. to learn, I, I took typing, you know, yeah. I mean, I guess oh, yeah, yeah, still yeah. Teach typing, but I took also cursive, uh, like in elementary yeah. school, like nobody learns cursive anymore. You know, the things just get obsoleted pretty fast these days. I took wood, yeah, so people don't take woodshop anymore, do they? Home ec. I did. I did. Yeah. I did. Of course. No, no, the boys take, yeah, the boys take woodshop. The, the girls take home ec as the, yeah. as the old model, which uh, lasted for a long time. It's probably still out there. Yeah. So I'm very fun. <laughs> I love that. Class. It is true. Yeah. It is fun to use a, yeah, use a, use a bandsaw. So, you know, as a teenager, it's a lot of fun to, to do things that run the risk of cutting off fingers. But so I think that, I think that all makes sense. I think the sort of, you know, the historical to modern lens I would I would provide to this is, you know, I think I talked earlier uh, on the previous episode about the modern un American university system is sort of a derivation of a combination of the old English system and the old German system. And the old English system, you know, which still survives in the form of like Oxford and Cambridge is basically, you know, what they call I think philosophy, politics, economics, PPE. There's sort of a sort of classical education that is intended to prepare basically future political leaders. And, you know, basically all prime ministers of the UK basically have that educational background, you know, to this day. Uh, so this sort of very humanities, liberal arts, classics, you know, Greek, Latin, ancient literature, politics, political ideas, political philosophy, <laughs> some economics, maybe not enough. Yeah. Um, so, so it was very much that tra training leaders fundamentally. And then the German model was technical education. And so it was training engineers. And, you know, to this day, when you meet an engineer from Germany, it's actually, you know, pretty likely they have a PhD from one of these German technical universities, which, you know, a PhD is at like much higher rates in engineering fields than, yeah. than I think in the American system. Yeah. So it's sort of designed to be a technical education system. And then the American system kind of, you know, starting about a century ago, kind of merged those two and now, now does, does, does both of those. But look, the, the, there was a presumption in both of those that basically you had elites teaching elites, right? And so you had sort of the absolute cream of the crop of the British aristocracy taking the, those programs at Oxford and Cambridge 200 years ago. And then you had the smartest math, you know, kind of, you know, people tested highest on math scores, yeah. taking the, the, those German systems. And then there, there were very specific things that they were trying to get across to you. Like they were in the one system, they were trying to teach you how to run the British empire. And the second system, they were trying to teach you how to like build railroads, yeah. right? Right. They, they had like very specific goals. And so they, and they jammed these programs full of all of the knowledge that they thought, you know, that the previous elites thought that the new elites would need to do that. Right. And then there's this like there's this idea, you know, that I that I, you know, kind of think about a lot on, on things like this and how 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 these things have evolved. And I think you'll better think you're familiar with this. It's called Goodhart's Law. 
Mm-hmm. When, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Yeah. Right. And, and it's or more colloquially, in other words, when we set one specific goal, people will tend to optimize for that objective regardless of the consequences. Yep. Uh, <laughs> right. Mm. Or another another way to put that, the term you'll also hear is cargo cult, right? Which is sort of this idea that, you know, if, um, you know, if, 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 uh, if like, I go to college, I'll get a high paying job. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Because people went to college in the past and got high paying jobs. Therefore, if I go to college, I'll get a high paying job. And, 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 and the, the, the activity itself becomes the point. Yeah. Right. As, as compared to the actual underlying substance. And so the, the, the Goodhart's law here, is, you know, there is an element of Goodhart's law here, which is the four years. Yeah. In other words, like it's sort of that, that idea got abstracted out. And now it's like, oh, if you take classes for four years, therefore, you now have a university degree and you are now qualified to do things that, that has become an abstract idea, independent of the actual content, in, in, independent of what you're being taught, independent of what you're learning, independent of what the degree is, independent of how good the professors are, independent of whether there's any economic demand for any of that. Independent of how well you learned it. Right, independent, independent, exactly, independent of whether you went to class. Or, or, or you just got drunk the whole time and great inflation. Exactly, great inflation, exactly, yeah. Well, it's just part of part of the old system, obviously. The old system was actual performance standards. Like, what if you still put everybody through four years and just got rid of all the performance standards, right? And so it's it's this it's this check the box, you know, it's process versus substance thing. It's this check the box thing where, for, you know, and we talked about this last time, it's like, there's no quote unquote college. It's not an abstract thing. It's It's a college, you know, with a specific quality and then it's a degree with you know specific substance and then it's you know at a level of performance you know that actually like you know validates that you've actually learned anything and and so it, it's all extremely specific yeah. to the circumstances but we we just we reduce it to this very abstract conversation of a college degree or not a college degree four years or not right well and it, you know it's really interesting that you bring that up cuz I, I think back to when I was um teaching assistant at UCLA in computer science and even in computer science which was super rigorous there because just to qualify into that department was nearly impossible because they had very few slots you know compared to the number of people who wanted them but the variance in students and capability was profound i mean you know they they're and and all of, you know in computer science everybody made an effort or they flunked out cuz UCLA actually wanted to flunk you out of the major so they could make room in the major i mean that that that's actually a important thing for them to have to do whereas that you know other schools and other majors that's not a thing you know clearly with grade inflation and whatnot and so yeah one could imagine that you have two totally different people coming out the other end you know in any any given time even up yeah so i think university in the same major yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And so, so I, this is sort of the thing is I think it, it, it all, you know, is four years the right amount. It really begs these underlying questions. And so the underlying question is, okay, like what, you know, what are you learning? What, what, what is the content? How, how are you doing with it? Are you actually learning it? What, what is, what is the, the, the quality of the, of the teaching that you're getting? What is the economic demand for the, you know, education and skills that you're developing? Like those underlying questions really matter. And so for, yeah, so for something like computer science, maybe the optimal amount is four years and maybe even longer you know, for, for, for other fields, maybe not. And the, the, the cookie cutter, the Goodhart's law aspect of this is it's the cookie cutter four years thing basically just does not, it doesn't even basically, it, it, it's a very easy way to not have to have any of those underlying conversations, which, which is what I, what I think has happened. Yeah. And so if you were inventing a system from scratch, you would do what the originators of the English and German systems did and, and what the creators, you know, of what folks like, like Austin at Lambda school are doing, which is you would look from scratch first principles, then you would say, okay, like, what is the specific purpose of this specific degree at this specific point in time? 
and and maybe that's a year, maybe that's four years, maybe that's eight years. You, you know, you, that, 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 like the time would be an output of that question, not an input. Right. And yeah. and, and this go, this goes to just the the you know to, if if you want to be skeptical about the possibilities of reform here, a good reason to be skeptical is Goodhart's law has fully kicked in, which is the 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 process has become the substance as opposed to the substance driving the process. Yep. Uh, yeah. And like that, you know, in in academia's defense, I think that happens with everything that's lasted long enough. So congratulations to them for lasting long enough to hit Goodhart's law, but probably need pretty massive reform to get it back on track. Yeah, as, as sort of as I think as you're alluding to, companies often run into the same situation, right, over time. It's not, oh, not yeah, unfamiliar yeah. to those of us who have run businesses. A hundred percent. No question. Yeah. In fact, it even happens at venture capital firms, right? You're yeah, saying. yeah, no question. Look, Sears Roebuck used to be a great company. You know, venture capital for anything that lasts long enough, in particular, I think any institution that outlives the people who started it can yeah. very quickly run into this problem because the more successors you have, the more they tend to mimic the old way of doing things without necessarily knowing why. Yeah, it's like the cargo. Like it, that's where it works. They're still doing the they're still doing the rain dance from two hundred years ago that resulted in you know the <laughs> the air shooting in of a crate of supplies and they're still hoping another crate of supplies shows up. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Right. So for those of you who haven't heard of cargo cults, spend some time on the Wikipedia page. It's yeah. it's an idea. You see it. You see them everywhere. Um, so okay, and then let's go to this is very these very forward these are great forward looking. Well, no, I'm going to divert and then I'm going to go to the forward looking question. So the diversion is a very I think actually interesting question that is getting more and more discussion as people sort of observe the student loan crisis and the sort of dissatisfaction of the people coming out of universities and mm-hmm. and quite honestly the unhappiness of people coming out of universities, which is yeah. you know spiking way up, which is which is remarkable in and of itself. But uh, Jeff Johnson asks, um, how can we convince smart young people to consider trade schools, right? And, and here, you know, trade schools is, you know, literally, you know, the electrician, plumber. So, so, so basically the argument go, there are people arguing this and you see this on Twitter. It's an argument in particular on the, on the, on the right, on the political right right now, which is basically like, look, like, you know, these universities have all these issues. And so it's like, there's this other path. And the other path basically is go get a skill, a, a, ser- a serious skill in a trade where it's not a college degree, but it's like, a, let's say electrician, plumber, or, you know, the, the, these other things, or, or, or for that matter, yeah, like a, like a data analyst or like even, you know, look, even like certain kinds of, you know, nurse practitioner, you know, certain kinds of things like that, where it's not like a four or six or eight year college thing, but it's like a very applied one or two year, you know, kind of thing. And then you kind of enter the, you enter the workforce with a trade. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, people point out, it's like, you know, a lot of liberal arts, you know, graduates are coming out of, especially second and third tier colleges, and they get these 30000 or $40,000 a year jobs. And that's why they're, you know, maybe so, so unhappy. They have such a large amounts of student debt. Uh, you know, look, people, high skilled, I mean, Ben, what do, what, do, what do electricians get paid in the Bay Area right now? Oh, I think a lot and going way up. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I don't know the exact amount, but well, it's funny. 100. There was a, I hate to bring up South Park again because it shows how much I watch South Park, but they had a great episode on AI where they were like, the, the richest guy in all of South Park was the uh, handyman. Nobody knew how to fix anything. And they were all the laptop class right. and they were all getting put out of work. He's driving around a Rolls Royce and like all the women are like hanging off of him. And, and look, in terms of supply and demand, at least in, so in wealthy areas, so in urban areas, I think that if you're not, so like if you're an elite engineer or whatever, like that's a great path and, you know, university is a great path. I think if you're kind of just chinning above the bar and you go to four-year college to become part of the laptop class, which was a huge employer, 
that that set of jobs is kind of under a pretty aggressive attack by technology, interestingly. You know, these administrative paper pushing sort of ideas. At the same time, you know, the thing that AI is not going to be able to do is be a handyman or a welder <laughs> or an electrician or like a lot of these things that you do learn in trade school. So there is an economic argument to do that. And, you know, like, you know, as that kind of thing, like I, I think that, you know, a lot of those jobs, particularly if they're skilled, welding is pretty fucking tough job. So some of them are better than others. But yeah, like I, I definitely think there's an argument. And, you know, I think a lot of people would be, if you're happier doing that, you no longer should feel like you have to go to college for economic reasons. I, I guess is the way I would think about it. Um, because I think the economics are probably better at going to trade school. If, if that's what you like doing. Yeah, I think electricians, I don't know for sure. I would suspect electricians in the Bay Area are probably paid something like uh, probably mid, sort of 150000 or something, you know, so, so, which is like basically like 3x what maybe a typical liberal arts graduate is making in a sort of a, you know, a second tier, from a second tier school oh, yeah. in the same area, right? So so like out of the gate, it's it's actually, the, to, to, for all the reasons you described, there's actually this economic kind of re, re the kind of economic uh, re, refactoring that's happening kind of mm-hmm. in that direction, at least out of the gate. So, and let me also say, look, like, you know, the part of the argument on this is like, look, yeah, uh, having a trade, working in the real world, you yeah. know, f- making things and fixing things and making things happen in the real world is like a, you know, deeply honorable, you know, kind of thing to do. Being able to provide for your family by doing that, being able to, you know, contribute to your community by doing that, you know, is, is like an incredibly, incredibly, you know, I just have like a ton of respect, um, you know, for, for, for everybody who does that. The, you know, the, the, the counter the counter argument on that, the counter argument on that is, yes, fine, but our society is wired in, for better or for worse. Our society is wired in such a way that sort of the quote unquote elite, you know, kind of the people who end up running everything are are not that that it's it, rather it's, it's it's people who went to college. Yeah, it's yeah. people who kind of get minted into the, you know, the, the presumption of some sort of intellectual social aristocracy that it where the evidence of that is the college degree. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe even more than that, of course, within that is, you know, which college and then, you know, the, 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 the people with college degrees who end up in all the management jobs who end up in all of the government jobs, you know, who end up, you know, running, you know, basically running everything. And so by by take the, the counter argument is by taking the trade school route, you're kind of opting out of being on a track where you end up basically being in a in a in a societal leadership role. And, and in fact, look, I, you know, I think you could actually even say this is this is driving a fair amount of our, our you know, political division between the between the parties right now. Let me also say that we have made in our society, we have made including and in our government, we have made explicit policy decisions that drive that. And specifically, the number of jobs in the system that require a college degree is very high. Yeah. And so, and you, you just see this in job applications or any study of like job, you know, job postings, yeah. which is- It's going down now. Well, let's talk about that. Like, is, is it? How yeah. fast will it? Like, how, what do we think about that? Well, a lot of companies have kind of announced that they're removing the requirement. And, you know, I, I certainly, um, you know, in our, in our own hiring process, we, encourage people not to have those kinds of requirements because, you know, look, people can become extremely smart without ever going to college and very skilled, you know, particularly in computer science. You know, <laughs> one could argue that there's better ways to learn it than going to class. So, so I, I, I mean, I don't know, like, like it's been going the other direction for so long, it's hard to say, okay, it's going to stop and completely reverse course. But yeah, that conversation is definitely happening right now. And I know, you know, and because I sit on that, you know, or I did that kind of committee 
at the firm about like, okay, how do we think about criteria for this and that and the other? And the one thing that everybody always agreed on or that, that people immediately agreed on was like, okay, let's remove college degree and talk about what are the skills and talents that they have to have and as opposed to what's a credential just you know because all the things that we we've, we've been talking about here so i i think people are recognizing it now i don't know if it like completely reverses trend i do think i mean the other thing kind of question on kind of trade school versus college on that i think i think that that's right i would add to that the nasim taleb thing which is are you going to work in mediocristan or are you going to work in extremistan and it's very so describe describe that for people who haven't heard that Yes, yeah, so in mediocristan, and I, he'll attack me on Twitter if I get this wrong, but I'll, I'll do my no, don't, don't worry, he's going to attack you on Twitter <laughs> no matter he'll what. He'll attack me anyway, yeah. Very, very smart, very disagreeable person. But so, so basically, mediocristan is the world in which it, it kind of follows the Gaussian distribution. So you basically work by the hour, you get paid by the hour, and the kind of highest paid person by the hour and the lowest paid person by the hour, you know, the difference is not that great. You know, it's two standard deviations above the mean, two standard deviations below. In extremistan, on the other hand, it's not a Gaussian distribution, it's a mantle Brattian <laughs> distribution, which means that, you know, in this, if you build a product and you sell it to the world, you can make, you know, almost, you know, it feels like an infinite amount of more money, but, you know, tens of thousands of times as much money as the next guy, as opposed to twice as much or, you know, 10 times as much. Or, and, or zero. Or zero. Or the other side. Yeah, yeah right. Or, or, or you can, you know, graduate and not be able to get a job and get stuck on meth or whatever. Like that, that happens to right. an extreme stand to a much greater right. degree. And yes, so if, you know, if you go to trade school, you know, unless you parlay that into some kind of really scalable business, which it's hard to scale totally. trades to that degree, then you're right. not going to get, you're not going to jump the fence into extremistan and you're not going to be kind of subject to these kind of hyperbolic kind of scale that, that you get, you know, potentially with the college degree. So I think that if your ambition is to be a world leader or yeah. like a billionaire or something like that, that is really not a good path, trade school, I don't think, for those kinds of ambitions. Now, on the other hand, if you're like, I just want a good job, then right. that might be a better path. So it really depends okay. on who you are and what you want to be. And look, not everybody wants to be that. Like, you know, yeah. nobody wa not everybody wants to be hated to that degree, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to have those things. Correct. Exactly. Okay. So then that takes us into the general question coming back to the universities. And so Matias asks, if you were 18 again and have the choice between the following, number one, go to Harvard, number two, one-to-one -one private tutor, or number three, Teal Fellowship, which would you choose and why? And I think it's a very provocative question because all three of those are like cream of the crop, top end, you know, anybody, any, any, any kid who gets any, any of those choices is great. And, but it's an interesting kind of thought experiment to say, okay, what about those three, by the way, I would add four and five, which I, I can't resist. Four would be what, you know, basically go to work, uh, you know, just like that's skip, that's skip all of that. 
it just goes straight to work. And, you know, you and I, you know, came up in a field, computer science, where that, that is actually mm -hmm. something you can do. You can just like start coding. And if you're good at coding, you can just go mm -hmm. to work. That's obviously not true in a lot of other fields. Yeah. And then I would also add, Ben, I would add a fifth one, which is kind of a, a another one we see, which goes back to this, is this sort of question, which is, I think it's University of Waterloo that has the, is it the they have the, like the, the, the sort of very integrated co-op uh, program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the idea basically is they have work, they have periods of, you know, so like uh, back up in like a normal engineering school, like you're, you're in school, you know, fall and spring, and then you, you have time for like two month internships in the summer. And so you can go to a tech company or whatever and, and work for two months in the summer at, at Waterloo. I think the way they do it, or what I recall is it's like, almost think of it as like alternating semesters. You spend a semester in class, and then you like spend a full semester, like six months in a job somewhere. That seems and then you come back to an idea. Yeah. yeah. That like great. Yeah. Yeah, and I actually did a version of that. Uh, Illinois, where I went, didn't really have the full version of that, but they had a version of that called the co-op program. And I actually spent, I actually had a nine-month stint in the middle of my my school. I had a nine-month stint at IBM at the time in Austin in a job. And I was there for a full nine months in the middle of my my college uh, education. And it was actually really amazing because it was like having a, you know, it was like basically being injected straight into the workforce, but but still kind of going through the education process. So anyway, let's, let's go back to, yeah, let's go back to this question. So going to Harvard, private tutor, Teal Fellowship, go straight to work or maybe this sort of ping pong, it's called the ping pong model of, of, of education, work, education, work. Like how would, how would we bake those off, especially for kind of the smartest, most talented kids or the parents of those kids? Okay. Well, if you go the smartest and most talented, well, okay. So it, it, even among the smartest and most talented, I think there's variation in how you mean smart and talented. <laughs> so like if you are like the best in the world at one thing and that one thing is like, programming like that kind of smart then i think that the teal fellowship might be very very interesting in the sense that it gives you one like you don't really need the learning part because you you can learn on your own but it gives you kind of a little bit of capital and a little bit of networking which is probably what you need the most and you know and and being around kind of people like yourself and learning from them. So you get like an appropriate peer group, you get some money to get going and you kind of launch out into the world. So I think that's very attractive for, you know, kind of the, the people are, who are kind of one dimensionally, like the, the top of the top, like literally the kind of best Vitalik, like that seemed like an unbelievable move for him because he's, you know, maybe there's not a better programmer in the world than Vitalik, right? Like he is, he's like Jeff Dean level, whatever. On the other hand, <laughs> let's say you're amazingly charismatic, very good engineer, but not like that. Then you think the Teal Fellowship might be tough because you might not have, you know, a good enough technical grounding at that point to go start a company. And, you know, then you're kind of lost and you're in this world of you know, a bunch of other very nerdy characters, but so, you're, so the you're argument gain that from them. The argument that I, the, and I'm not saying I believe this argument, I'm just saying the argument that I've heard from people who have gone through the Teal Fellowship and had a bad experience with it is the, the, the way they, they, I've heard them describe it is, it's like being thrown to the wolves. Yeah. Right, which is like you're, you're tossed into a house with, this, this, is the glory, this is the glory and possibly the, the issue with it is yeah. you're tossed into a house with, you know, a bunch of other kids who are all 18, just like you. Yeah. And then is it raised by Willie, like you're, you're just with, yeah, no guidance, no guidance, no adult, you know, no adult, no, no, no guidance. And and so you, you're learning from each other, but like, what do you even have to teach each other? You're also young. And so you sort of lack adult, you know, sort of, sort of guidance. Is that like, yeah, let's, let's factor that in. As, as, as like, like, I don't think I would have done well with a 
TL Fellowship. Well, like to me, it sounds perfect for Vitalik because he could go build something. And then it was enough kind of socialization networking for him. But he didn't really need guidance because like he was following the idea. He had the idea and he was following that and away he went. And, and that seems like a very good kind of program for somebody like that. I think that if you're, you know, if you want to be a world leader, I think maybe the one-on-one tutoring with, coupled with some kind of networking thing would be good, at, at least in my view. And then, you know, that co-op thing, you know, if you wanted to be like an entrepreneur or a, you know, a business person and you weren't like Vitalik level or, you know, that kind of thing, then then that seems like a, a kind of better balanced path because, you know, you can, you don't have to learn everything on your own. And then you also start to understand some more kind of practical, tangible, like, okay, what does this mean? What I'm learning in an actual real environment in the, in the kind of actual world. So, so I think it depends a lot, a lot on the student. It, it would be the way I would think about it, but, and then, you know, like a four-year university with no work component, that the, you know, like I, I kind of like the work component better <laughs> now that you brought up the, the, the co-op thing. But I, I imagine there are certain things like if you, but I think even if you're going to be like a philosopher or, you know, a social scientist or any of those things, like being in a workplace, academia is such a, like a, a rarefied, different, you know, almost artificial environment compared to everything else in life. And so... I think the idea of just being there for four years, like in retrospect for me, like I think I would have gotten more out of, you know, and I, I was one of the very fortunate people to have summer internships. And I have to say the summer internships probably had a much greater impact on my career and my life than the university. The university enabled me to get the summer internships, so they, they went together in that sense. Yeah, there's a econ- famous economist, very highly regarded economist named Halvarian, who's been a professor at UC Berkeley for for many years. I think may have at one point run the department, and uh, he went to work. It's like 15 years ago now, or something, or maybe even 20. He went to work at, at Google as a fully like tenured econ professor, top of his field. Wow. He went to work at Google as a as their chief economist, <laughs> and he he ended up basically like being central to the design of like all the ad you know all the ad auction algorithms wow. and, and and all these yeah, things. Exactly. He, he's been. <laughs> but he did a good job. <laughs> he did. He did a great job. He's he's for those for those of you into this kind of thing, like just search search on like Halvary and Google PDF, and you'll you'll see a lot of his presentations and papers over the years. And he, I think, makes this argument, if I recall correctly, he basically makes the argument you're making and in, in back into his field, which is economics, which is basically like, wow, if you have like academic e- economics training, but then you get exposure to the real world and you're in an environment in which there's like, a, a, like an enormous amount of data in like real, you know, real, real situations. And then, you know, it's like, you know, sort of the world is a laboratory and the company and a company is a laboratory. Like you can actually like test your theories, you can deploy your theories, yeah. right? And you can, you can avoid ending up in, you know, just a world of abstract distraction, yeah. um, you know, which ha- ha- has the risk of being, you know, leading to kind of, <laughs> you know, potentially derangement. You know, he's been arguing that for a long time. I think, you know, some some economists, especially younger ones, I think have have followed in his footsteps. I think a lot of others have very, you know, deliberately not listened to that. Skip that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, now, like, very... in, you know, it's one of the kind of most amazing possibilities with crypto is that you have an entire world, an entire economy that's completely observable and studyable in a way 
Right. The, the big problem with the field of economics is that there's this enormous amount of data and, you know, you, you basically focus in on a small bit of that data and then that small bit of data is also lagging and inaccurate. So, you know, you like a GDP numbers or this and that. And, you know, it's hard to get all the way home. Whereas, you know, economists, many economists love crypto because, okay, here's the whole economy. <laughs> it's sitting on the blockchain. You can observe every last transaction, every piece of data. It's 100% there and auditable. And then you can analyze it and analyze the incentives and, and see how they played out in the real world. Because, you know, I mean, that's the other challenge with economics is it's, you know, all this human behavior psychology, which has been notoriously difficult to predict. People don't always, turns out people don't always act in their best interest. <laughs> right. right. Or, yeah. or their best interest defined as a single utility function of yeah, future income yeah, or something yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. Von Neumann got that wrong. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and then let's let's close off this section with, in many ways, the most straightforward question, and then also maybe ultimately the most important one. Patrick Rahel asks, as a as a newish father, I couldn't help but wonder, what the hell is this going to look like for my kids? What would you do if you had two young kids and plan for their educational futures? And as it turns out, I have an eight year old, and so yeah, I don't you think should about you it. should start on this one because you've thought about it much more than I have. My kids are adults. <laughs> Your kids are adults. Uh, so although at some, I, at some point, I don't worry about this nearly as much as you do. Yeah, although at some point they're grandkids in your future. So, so yeah, I mean, look, like it's really striking. And, I, and look, I don't know that I have any you know great answers on this. It's just, it's really striking. You know, so my, my kid's eight. It's like, he's going to go to, you know, in theory, he's going to go to college in 10 years. Yeah. Like everything we've been talking about, Ben, for the last, like, you know, seven hours on this, on this topic, like what are colleges going to be like in 10 years? Not the same. <laughs> They'll either be much better or much worse. Yeah, exactly. And so like, I, I feel like, like I, I it, it, you know, to, 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 to Patrick's question here, like, how do you plan for a future in which you don't even know what's on the other end? Like, you don't even know what the options are going to be. You don't even know, like, how it's going to be received. And then look, you know, look, maybe it's your point. Like, maybe that maybe in 10 years, it'll just be like, wow, things are much better now. And yeah, there was a crisis some time ago, but this has all been fixed and things kind of go back to normal. Uh, you know, or maybe it's going to be, wow, these places have like gone like completely psychotic. And like, I'm, there's no way I'm going to feed my kids into these threshing machines. And, and they're, we're going to we're going to all be looking for like alternate paths. And so it's it's a really like I think it's I think it's going to be a very weird and disconcerting time for a lot of parents to try to think ahead for this. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that. I do think that, yeah, this questioner seems to have very young kids, so that's good yeah. news and that there's more time to see how it plays out. But I'm fairly confident that over a 10 year period, new models are going to emerge. And look, I mean, the, the, the great thing about new models is they tend to be extremely well thought through I and mean, hopefully. I mean, the big question is, will the new models become robust enough, you know, in that time frame that, you know, you can count on them, you know, particularly for the credentialing part. Um, yeah. But, but I, I do think the choices will be different. Like, I guess what I'm saying is, like, if I had a two-year-old, I think it would be dangerous to, or, or not worthwhile to try and overthink it now, because it's going to be very different. And you're better off making a late, what we call in computer science, a late binding decision. <laughs> and when things are known, then, you know, make the decision as opposed to try and make it early. It does, you know, like, I mean, it's tricky because, you, you know, do you, <laughs> do you have to save like $5 million for college or, you know, will that get fixed? That's certainly an open question. Or you just need to vote, spend the next 10 years only voting for and working on behalf of political candidates who promise to make it all free, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, although as what did the Argentinian president Javier Malay say? If, yeah. You know, if um, printing money, or printing, saying printing money eradicates pro- poverty is like saying printing diplomas eradicates the stupidity, which I, right. I think, unfortunately, making it all free by our current methodology, which is running a yeah. $2 trillion deficit, probably isn't going to last. Probably not. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, look, here's the other thing I think is happening. And I, I just I, I don't even know quite how to think about this yet. But I'll just, you know, as N of one, you know, we've 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 you know, we're homeschooling. Right. You know, so one of the things we've done is we, we're you know, we've, we're homeschooling. We've gone we've gone back to the older model, which is actually the, the previous question, more of like private tutoring. And, 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 you know, you and I both know, I think a lot of parents, especially in tech and in business who, you know, say an increasing number who are either doing that or are creating kind of new micro schools. Well, you know, Elon Musk, you know, famously created a new school for his kids, which was literally located in a a rocket factory. Yeah. You know, there are other, you know, there, there are some very prominent Silicon Valley people who have created micro schools, pods, you know, this sort of started during COVID. And then in a lot of cases they've, they've continued. And the reason I bring this up is because, you know, the, the presumption for the last hundred years has been that if you are, you know, if you're just like a general American parent, you send your kids to, you know, K through 12, either public or private, you know, and then if it's, if you're sort of upper middle class, you know, middle class, upper middle class, you're going to send them to college. And then there's always been homeschooling as the out, but homeschooling, you know, generally until recently has been kind of the, you know, quote unquote, lower class, you know, kind of thing, you know, evangelicals, you know, people who, right. you know, kind of, you know, people who are not aspiring to have their kids, you know, be the leadership class, but rather, you know, stay oh, away from them. I mean, unless you have the money to hire kind of private teachers and so forth, you need kind of mom or dad to like literally be the homeschool teacher, which is, you know, not always viable too. But here's the significance of it. Here's the significance of it. You can feel this starting to tilt a little bit in the Bay Area. And I don't know if this is going to, the reason I bring this up is I don't know if this is going to scale or not, but it'll be interesting to see if it does. The single, like the highest status thing you could do as a parent in the Bay Area five years ago was send your kid to one of the super elite private schools. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, and, you know, we actually had our kid. Oh, get into those schools. Yeah. yeah. Very intense. You know, these these kinds of things. I mean, they're gorgeous. Like the the private schools in in Silicon Valley are then 98% of the college campuses in America. Yeah, that's right. And these are the schools that literally are interviewing three-year-olds, right? Like formal interviews, you know, for, 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 for admission. And, and, you know, we, there's, we had a whole game plan for how to like, you know, have our three-year-old be like exhausted as possible by the time he went in for the interview. So he just wouldn't run around everywhere. So it's like, you know, the typical kind of high, high status, you know, high stress, you know, kind of thing. But like, I think in the Bay Area now, like it's at least as high status or maybe higher status to like have your kids in like one of these super elite homeschool pots with like super top end tutors. And, you know, the, the, those kids at the very tippy top of, so let's say the socioeconomic scale, they're, 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 you know, the parents are opting out of the private schools and they're, they're just, you know, taking responsibility for their kids' educations. And as we discussed last time, like that is the traditional method of, of the aristocracy. The traditional method of the aristocracy educating their kids is not to send them to some school. It's to, it's to, it's to, it's, it's to have them have tutors and private teachers. And so if, if the, if the, if the upper, upper tippy top of the socioeconomic stratum starts to do that, and that's the highest class thing to do, then you could, then you could imagine a future system in which, you know, more and more parents kind of throughout society are like, oh, like I, there actually is an escape hatch. I, you know, in other words, being on the traditional track actually is not the route to the highest status. There's this other route and I should maybe be more creative and thinking about the trajectory that my kids have, including ultimately the question of whether they go to college. Yeah. Yeah. Now that is interesting. I'm kind of trying to think about how that works for like people who don't have a lot of money. I mean, just like, so if, (laughs) when I started my career, I didn't have much money. My kids went to public school, then I got money and I put them in private school, you know, as they got to high school also to keep them out of trouble. Right. 
And then I wonder, you know, because a lot of people, look, when you, if you had had kids when you were young, you would have been in that situation too, of course. The, so I'm not, to yeah. be clear what I'm suggesting though, I'm not suggesting that, I'm not suggesting that like homeschool suddenly scales or something for, for the economic reasons you're talking about. I'm talking about like, if it, if it, if it opens a crack in the door uh, and says the oh, route to the high, yeah. yeah if, uh, you know, like maybe it's like, you know, you just need one kid in the neighborhood who's got a mom who's really smart and knows how to teach. And then you, everybody just joins that. And then that enables her to teach and not have to, you know, get a job to support the family. And then, you know, like if that model takes shape, the beauty of it is, you know, the parents have total control right now, like the, the big complaint and the big, another political kind of tension is, you know, parents have lost any control over the curriculum in public or private schools, but in homeschooling, they've got ultimate control. And so that it's, it's an interesting idea. Like just, maybe it just goes back to that and maybe that's better. Yeah. Or, or maybe it's new models, you know, maybe it's new models. Maybe, you know, it's, it's a, we'll talk about the AI thing in a second here, but maybe it's some combination of AI teaching coupled with like intensive in-person tutoring in a way that's scalable. You know, if somebody, maybe somebody does that as a business, you know, we fund a startup that does that. And, And my point being like, if there's a route to high uh, status, it's funny. If, if there's, yeah, okay. right. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, we do have a startup that does that for daycare, Wonder School, and like Wonder <laughs> School could just level up one level, you know, above, you know, little kids into kindergartners and so forth. But but that it's essentially the model. You know, it's basically here's the way you set up a daycare for your neighborhood. And was all the tools and best practices and this and that and the other, and boom, and you just go. And then the great thing is you have this thing that we always talk about in business, which is how do you push ownership and accountability all the way down? Well, one way is every teacher is an entrepreneur um, and every parent is deeply invested in the small school, homeschool that they're part of. And right. like maybe that's the right model for America. Um, I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't thought about it until you brought it up. So it's not well thought through, yeah. but it's a very interesting yeah. that if it's working for the kind of the elite of the elites in Silicon Valley, then maybe it is right. the right model. Yeah. And look, by the way, there's a historical precedent, which is in the, you know, 100 years before the modern system, you know, in the 1800s in the U.S., you know, when the U.S. was being built in the 1800s, the system was they called it the Little Red Schoolhouse. And you'd have some town in the middle of nowhere and you'd have a little schoolhouse and you'd have 15 kids and you'd have, they'd be all mixed age ranges and you'd have a single teacher and you'd have whatever, you know, it would be the, it would be the program the community wanted and everybody, the parents were all intimately involved in it. Yeah. Uh, it was hyper-local and, you know, they were geographically, you know, dispersed without cent- strong central, you know, there was, no, there was no department of education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Schoolhouse, yeah. It's a schoolhouse, right? And 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 then and then as a and yeah, look where these are the people who like built America. I mean, these are the people who like built. You know, they built all the cities and they built all the you know factories and they built, you know, they built everything. And so yeah, yeah, it worked actually quite well. And now it was it was variable, right? And so you know the the great kind of standardization wave that hit you know kind of with industrialization in the you know nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, and after kind of you know eliminated a lot of that. But like. You know, you that yeah, you, there is a there is a very successful historical precedent for just a, a much more distributed, hyper local 
flexible, uh, adaptable, community-oriented approach to this. That I, you know, I, I think basically, I mean, look, this is the this is the upside of the collapse of an existing you know sort of monopoly is all of a sudden the fragmentation means you can have all kinds of experimentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's very interesting. Well, you know, the the way you tell it, it reminds me of Airbnb, right? Like Airbnb hotels kind of stand. It started with these bed and breakfast inns and whatnot, and then hotels standardized the whole thing. And you could yeah. yet count on a level of quality, but then the internet comes and guess what? You can measure the quality of every tree house and every bedroom and so forth. And like, you know, maybe you can actually measure the quality of every schoolhouse and, you know, <laughs> dad or mom who's teaching and all that kind of stuff and rate them all. And it becomes visible to everyone. And then you have, and then you get all the benefits of like extreme ownership, no bureaucracy, no waste. Very interesting. I'll give you one thing we're going to talk about AI here in a second, but I'll give you one thing you could just do is you could just assume that these schoolhouses just have cameras running all the time. Yeah. And so any, any parent at any time can see what's happening. And then you could have AI, you could have AI give you a summary at the end of the day of what happened in the classroom. Yep. Yeah. Right. And as a parent, you'd be like, oh, you know, this is what Johnny did today. And, you know, it's a level of so number one, it gives you accountability, which is like, you know, what's actually happening way more than you know what's happening in the, the public or private school you send your kid to today. Right. Um, and, and, well, and then you have the AI tutor to supplement the teacher if they don't know something. So let's talk about that. Okay, so we have three questions in a cluster here. We'll dig in. So Sergio asks, with the rapid developments of AI, what role do you see the university playing in the future when people can learn from such resources for free? Manuel Hernandez asks, given that lectures can now be online and tutorials can be performed by AI, how can we develop an independent study credentialing system? And then uh, Cathedral Operative, uh, which is a great uh, handle, uh, says, uh, what are your ideas for maintaining or improving the quality of degrees if AI tech makes it easier for students to write essays and pass uh, remote quizzes. So, uh, yeah. So let's, let's use that to kind of lead into the, um, you know, what, 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 what are our best guesses on like the impact of, of the, all these new AI technologies and, and what do they open up? What, what are they, what are they, what are they, what are they potentially really damaged and what do they really maybe open up? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you, you would obviously design things extremely differently if you knew AI existed, right? Like, I mean, you know, yeah, every th things really change. And, I think that, you know, in particular, like the nature of homework for grades, you know, as a measuring stick of where the student is, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine that working anymore, you know, in terms of like, go home, write an essay or go home, answer these questions and bring them back. It's like, you know, like uh, they've got like the smartest, like, machine in the world that can answer those and do an amazing job of it. Like, why are we, why, you know, like that's not no longer a technique, is it? Well, you know, just add, add one thing there, you know, there are various attempts by companies to do like AI detectors now, you know, was this text written by AI and schools are actually starting to use oh, that. And I, I think we can, that's not we can definitively, <laughs> that will not work. Yeah. Yeah. So what we can tell, there's already been cases like this. I actually know of a case like this with a parent and a kid where they got really sideways with the school yeah. um, in a very bad way. But just we can be very definitive. I think we can be very definitive. Those systems will not work. Those systems yeah. will not work. And so there's two. And they won't work in a very dangerous all over again. They won't work in a very dangerous way because they will both not catch AI generated content. But even worse, they will accuse kids of AI generated content even when it's not. Oh, for sure. Um and so those systems, I think, are just very dangerous. And I think schools should not even go to any schools of any kind should just not even start down that road. Like they're, they're, they're for sure there needs to be some answer to this, but like that can't be the answer. Yeah, no, that, that, that's an insane idea. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that'll never work. It doesn't work now. And it's, you know, right. going to work worse as time goes on. Like that, that's, yeah. that's very clear.
So I think, yeah, this gets to the unbundling question where the kind of knowledge, I think the internet started to unbundle like knowledge out of the university and AI kind of finishes the job on that, right? Like it makes it, you just do not have to go to university to get the knowledge of the world. And you know, like, that's how it started off. Like, why do we read the classics? That was the known knowledge. You know, why do we read the Bible? That was the known knowledge. And, you know, one, the world of knowledge is so much more vast now, but it's also much easier to access than by like sitting in an hour and a half lecture with a room full of students in a, you know, in a poorly air conditioned environment in a university, you know, building that was built in 17, you know, 95 or whatever. So, so with that gone entirely, then you're talking about the education part is really some common, really instruction. And then, you know, the credentialing part, as we talked about, is being diminished. We'll see if it continues that. And so it depends what gets unbundled. I mean, there is another thing that we didn't, that's a soft thing. We, we kind of mention it in reference to dating, but there's this sort of networking component. Neither you nor I made much use of it in our university days, but you know, one opportunity is to kind of, uh, you know, kind of build relationships that may kind of lead to kind of work or opportunities down the line. And so, you know, that that's also something that's getting decoupled via, you know, social networking and, you know, private WhatsApp groups and chat groups and these kinds of things. So, yeah, look, I think this all speaks to the, okay, is it going to get unbundled in a profound way that makes the proposition of buying the bundle piece you want separately much better? And that's a, that's a good question. I don't know if I know the answer yeah. to it, but like, it sure seems like a real possibility. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these trends that we're talking about kind of play out first in in actual in, in actual software in, in the field of software in the field of software development and computer science. And so, for example, you know, you mentioned the networking component. Like actually, in software, like a lot of networking is now unbundled in the form of the way the way people network in, in as software engineers is they work on open source projects. Yeah, and they they and they build reputations on for being open source contributors, and then they meet other open source developers working on those projects. And then in a lot of cases, you know, the other open source developers they meet are people who like have jobs at big companies, and then at some point they need to hire somebody. And who do you want to hire as somebody who's already known that, you know, you know, the quality of their code because you've seen it, you've already worked with them on the project. So like there's a, there's a, you know, stack, you know, stack exchange plays a similar role and so forth. So there, there's a, you know, sort of that happens. And then like going back to the earlier topic, but you know, the option of like going back to, you know, sort of going straight out of, out of, out of, out of, out of, you know, 18 going straight into the professional workforce. Like that's, that's arguably easiest to do in software again, because like, if you're a really good software developer at age 18, it, you, it's very easy for you to demonstrate how good you are. And there's lots of people who need to hire great software developers. And so there's, there's, I just bring it up because like, there's something about software that basically makes sort of causes this unbundling to happen faster. Yeah. It's just the, the name, and you know, a lot of it is just like, look, a lot of kids learn how to be great software developers as kids. You know, they're not a lot of kids sitting around learning how to become philosophers or learning how to become, you know, bridge, you know, civil engineers building bridges. <laughs> Hope not. <laughs> well, there are, there are a few. I don't know about the bridge builders. There are more and more young philosophers, but but a separate topic. But, you know, software developers, there's like a lot of that. And, you know, the critique that you could like level, I think, from the outside against a lot of stuff we're saying is like, yeah, Ben and Mark, like, yeah, software developers can do this. But like, you know, a lot of other fields and professions that, that doesn't happen. Like the kids are, you know, there's nobody who's going to be ready to enter the field and work in it at age 18 or there's no way to like meet other people in network. 
you know, the counter argument, the counter argument against that critique would be the software eats the world, right? Uh, thesis is if other fields become more like software and they're more based on software and they more have the patterns of software mm -hmm. um, and the intellectual content of those fields becomes more software centric, then those fields themselves might transform. And so like, a, you know, one to really watch here is biology, um, which is, you know, you, you, you've never been able to become a teenage biologist because you've never had access to a wet lab. And you're, you're not going to sit and study biology textbooks, you know, as a as a as a 15 year old, most likely. But on the other hand, if if the field of biology gets sort of enfolded and wrapped in software and more things, you know, like drug design and, you know, sort of vaccine design and so forth are being in software anyway, then a kid on a laptop right, can actually right. become a biologist. Right. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point where with AI, one could imagine you being able to model a human, you know, pretty exactly and yeah. do run experiments, in vitro experiments, so to speak, in yeah. software. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we actually know you and I know a few people who like, you know, came out of basically high school is actually quite talented, you know, quite, quite, quite deep into biology. So it's starting to happen. And then, you know, my, my, my eight-year-old, he's, you know, he's not ready to work at SpaceX, but, you know, there's this thing called Kerbal Space Program, which is this game slash rocket simulator that is actually a full physics simulation engine. And in the game, you actually like design rockets, build rockets, launch rockets, and it's all it's all it's all accurate. It's all physics accurate and engineering accurate. And so, if you design a rocket and and, and it has the a flaw in the simulation that is would have been a flaw in real life, it blows up in the exact same way that it would have blown up in real life. And so, yeah. you know, it's like you know, again, again, like I, I don't want to stretch this too far, but like if if somebody was super into rockets, you know, a lot of kids are into rockets. Like it's not inconceivable in a few years that they're actually gonna, you know, if they if they really if they really get into it. Yeah. You know, they, they, by the time they graduate high school, they will have built so many rockets in simulated environments that maybe they're ready for, you know, at the very least, an internship, if not an actual job in the field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, 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 that's super interesting and definitely correct. And, and so the, the, the point is, like, the so software, software eating fields basically makes them accessible, you know, sort of then makes them accessible to anybody with a laptop. And, and, and then as a consequence, sort of drives them down to where, you know, young, curious, smart kids can actually get super into these things in a way that was just never possible before. And so I think that, over the next like you know 30 years i think it's be one of the interesting things to track which is how many fields start to have basically young prodigies that you know where that that never happened before yeah 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 no that 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 that's super interesting and then a yeah and then ai right ai accelerates that right because then you know like you know when my eight-year-old wants to talk about rocket design he talks to chat gpt right like yeah. right which actually knows a lot so yeah Oh, and then let me come back to, I want to come back to one AI thing, which I think is striking. So I mentioned that the AI, you know, it was this essay written by AI checkers, like those don't work. So I think there's a death of the middle barbell kind of thing here, which is basically, and, and, and by the way, this happened before. So this happened actually with the introduction of pocket calculators in math classes. And Ben, you, you, you probably remember when that happened. Oh, I do remember when they came out. It was the end of the abacus. <laughs> right. Well, it's more, it's also, it was that, but it was also, you know, oh my God, like our kids going to be, our kids going to be cheating. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, so what if some, and then you, there were literally Casio made calculator watches. And so like you had to like check kids to see if they had like a, a calculator yeah. watch on before, yeah. before a math quiz. And then, you know, there, and, but then there was this counter argument that says, well, the world's going to be a wash of calculators. And so maybe math drill the shit out of people on arithmetic anymore. <laughs> exactly. Right. But then the counter argument to that was, boy, don't you actually want people to actually understand arithmetic? Like, do you want people totally dependent on, on, on machines? And, and, and then, a, you know, similar, similar debate broke out when search engines started to work and it's really, you know, happening now around AI. 
So I, I think what I would advocate for educators listening to this, I think what I would advocate is a very kind of stark bar, barbell approach, which is anytime there's a debate or discussion of the form of like, oh my God, is the kid cheating with AI? The, the very practice of whatever is happening in the classroom and, and with, with assessment is, is just wrong. It, it, whatever that approach is just needs to be dumped because th those are unsolvable problems. Yeah. Instead, basically, it should bifurcate. And basically, every every form of assessment should be, should be one or the other of the following uh, on, on opposite sides of the barbell. Either something in a literal classroom where there is no possibility that there's any sort of, you know, machine assistance, yeah. right? And so, you know, literally the only things in the classroom are, you know, paper and pencil. And it's a, it's a, it's a contained environment. So it's like if it's an essay thing, the kid writes the essay right there in the classroom and there's just yeah. no opportunity to go talk to an AI or whatever. Right. And, you know, you're going to have to check, make sure they don't have an earpiece and so forth. But like, you know, let's assume you can do that. Yeah. Or the other side of it, which is like, no, we're just going to assume that we're going to live in a world where everybody's going to have AI. And in that case, the educational mission is to teach everybody how to function in that world. Yeah. Right. And, and so fine, bring me back the, you know, bring me back like the most spectacular, you know, or like, you know, or like forget an essay, go write a book. Yeah. Right. And like, go use AI to write a book. Right. And come back with the best book. And, you know, that you could never assign a student to write a book before. But now all of a sudden you can. Yeah. Uh, or, or, you know, and, you know, you know, variations on that. Right. Uh, where, where you just kind of assume the world they're going to live in. They're always going to have AI. And so you kind of teach with 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 that parameter in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And, and by the way, when I was at Columbia, which is a long time ago, the fraternities used to have these huge filing cabinets with every paper that was ever written by any fraternity member and you could just go and copy one <laughs> and turn it in. And they were perfectly designed for all the classes at Columbia because they were actually written for them and you already knew the grade that they got. <laughs> and so like cheating, well, as we've seen, you know, like there's plenty of plagiarism at the height of the university pre-AI. So like I, I, I think that the whole idea of how the current system works on that is probably a little off. Yeah, that's right. All right, we're gonna come into the home stretch here. We'll go about an hour and a half, so we've got 15 minutes left. So a couple of specific questions I thought were quite interesting. So Malcolm K asks, can you talk more about the shift from tenured professors to adjunct professors and how this might be linked to grade inflation? And so let me describe the the the, the question for people who haven't heard this issue. So there's a traditional kind of professor path, you know, where they sort of, they, there's sort of three, traditionally like three layers, assistant professor, associate professor, and then full professor. And then at some point you get tenure, which means you're, you're at least in theory unfireable, which is when you're supposed to start doing your best work. Although for some reason, uh, the reverse usually happens. So, you know, that, that's the system. And then, you know, look, these are full-time, you know, these are full-time, you know, prestigious jobs and they, you know, they don't pay, you know, necessarily millions of dollars, but, you know, they're very well compensated full professors. Well, like as an example, we know what Claudine Gay is a law professor at Harvard, you know, makes $900,000, right? So you know, her, her, her compensation for better or for worse is not public. So, so, you know, top professors make, you know, anywhere between, I don't know, probably 200 to 200,000 to a million dollars, depending on what field they're in. And so, you know, it's, it's, so it's both a high prestige field and then also a, you know, relatively high income field for, you know, for what, what, what is a, an academic job, not a, not a sort of production oriented job. And, you know, but then the issue of that is actually professors are actually quite expensive. And so the university some time ago created this kind of thing called the adjunct professor. And the adjunct is somebody who is qualified to be a professor, has the PhD and all the equivalent training and so forth. But we're not going to hire them, you know, almost like the gig workers of the, of the academic field. We're not going to hire them as full-time employees. We're not going to give them tenure. They're not going to be on a tenure track. We're not going to pay them $200,000 a year. We're going to pay them $40,000 a year. And they're going to teach classes and they're going to be on contract for the year to teach classes. And maybe we're going to renew the contract next year. And maybe we're not. 
yeah. maybe they're going to go to another school or not. Or, or by the way, maybe they're only going to get contracts some years and in the other years they're going to be working, you know, you know, they're going to get jobs in the, in the hospitality industry. Yeah. Right. And so, so then there's this theory that basically says, I think it's Jordan Peterson who said this, he's like, look, like if you look at like, you know, for people who are like worried about like political craziness and radicalization of the universities, he's like, look, a lot of that are these adjuncts. It, like they're incredibly alienated people. Uh, you know, there's this term called the precariat. They're like in the precariat. They're, they're incredibly alienated people because as far as they're concerned, society has resulted putting them in a situation in which they are in theory high status, in reality, poor and miserable. Right. And so, of they're course, they're going to go. Academic so purgatory. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got no way to get out of that. They're going to spend their whole lives like that. Like they're not on a they're not on a ladder like they're stuck. Yeah. And so he's like, Jordan Sosu says, like, of course, they're socialist, right? Like, of course, they're going to be like, you know, develop all kinds of, you know, kind of crazy views like they, they, you know, in other words, like, they have no stake in society, yeah. right? Like, they, they, they have they have no like permanent role to play. And so they, they get incredibly alienated. And they, you know, and they and look, they put all this work and effort into getting their PhDs and getting into this position, and it hasn't paid off. And they just feel like they got screwed. Yeah. And so and, and you know, look, a lot of people, you know, they're not the only ones who go through that in our society and then feel like they get screwed. But these are the ones that are teaching your kids. And so he's like, look, if you wanted to like de-radicalize universities, you could start by just paying all the adjuncts $300,000 a year. Right. And there aren't that many of them. Yeah, and you, you, could just, you could just fire a few dozen administrators. You'd be fine. Exactly. In, in theory, in theory, you could. Yes. And so anyway, uh, I'm going to go through the long version of that, which is like, this is actually a significant part of the educational experience now, which is as a student, you're being taught by a combination of actual professors and then these adjuncts. And then these adjuncts do not have the same incentives or motivations, right? Or, you know, like yeah. whatever level of sort of vested interest that the actual professors have in the perpetuation of the institution and the discipline and whatever, yeah. like the adjuncts just naturally just like, they just simply don't have that. And so it's like an, it's like an itinerant class that you've like inflicted on this system and you, and, and basically that you shouldn't be surprised when they, they undermine the system. So let me, yeah, let me, let me, that's uh, that was quite a long, long journey through the question, but yeah, let me, let me pause there and see what we think of that. Well, I mean, I think that, I, I mean, I don't, I probably don't know enough about the kind of incentives for the adjuncts, but I could imagine that, you know, they're heavily kind of graded on their student satisfaction scores. And if that's exactly, and you know, you'd never give anybody anything but an A because like, you don't want your adjunct professor gig, which is your one piece of status in society to go away, that would be horrible. And the quickest way to make that go away would be to flunk a bunch of people who aren't doing the work. So I, yeah. I could certainly see that. Whereas if you're tenured, you know, you're tenured, like nobody's firing you. Right. No At least in, yeah, in the area, right. That, this is sort of the nature of the question, I think. I, and I think I th I've heard that this is what's happening. I don't know how widespread it is, but this is what I've heard is, yeah, a tenured professor can flunk kids because I'm a tenured professor, F off. Yeah. An adjunct, actually, you know, it's you, you may know this, Ben. It's like there, there's actually the internet's had an impact on this too. There's a website called ratemyprofessor.com. Rate and so yeah. adjuncts, professors, including adjunct professors, have a rating the same way that Uber drivers and Airbnb hosts have a rating. Yep. And the and the rate or glass door for, you know, CEOs. And the rating is set by the people who took their classes and specifically who are the most enthusiastic raters of, you know, professors, the ones who are mad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, just like Yelp. <laughs> right. Exactly. So like, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I could easily imagine this being a, a feeder into, I could easily imagine this system being a feeder into a great inflation. And then, you know, Ben, you and I, you and I have talked a lot about the fiscal situation of these universities, but this is one of those, to your point, you could fire a few administrators and fix this problem. You know, this is one of the sort of things that kind of squeezes out the side of a system where the economics have gone sideways, which is you actually have important jobs, which is literally like the person at the front of the class teaching the class and grading. 
yeah. where, you know, the institution as a whole, you would think would be prioritizing their income and their incentives. But in reality, the whole place is so squeezed for money. Yeah. You know, that, that, but, you know, that sort of at the end of the process, you know, that's actually where they actually take the money away. Yep. Yeah. Which, you know, no, nobody would have designed a system in which that happens, but I think that's the system that at least I, 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 I hear that a lot of universities have ended up in that situation. Yeah. Now, like, I mean, and I think that if you look at professor salaries, you know, other than look, if you're a Stanford professor or a Berkeley computer science professor and you help like spawn giant companies like Google, you make a lot of money. But if you look at, you know, the level of qualification for a professor on their salary, they're not paid that well. Like, I mean, I think that if you're designing the system from scratch, at least I would probably pay professors much, much more, particularly in fields that are highly competitive, like, you know, computer science or, you know, physics or th things where like, if they were to leave the university, they would get a much more high, high paying job. It just, that seems like an obvious thing to do, but to do that, you'd have to spend much less money running the rest of the university or, you know, although there are not that many professors compared to others, <laughs> you know, the, the that's what's the minority. That's what's amazing. That's what's amazing. From the people I've talked to who have observed this at their at their institutions, that's what's amazing is we're, we're not talking about that many professors, and we're talk, not talking about their you know that much money, yeah, uh, for their salaries, like just just up well, for their especially what, what the the gigantic you know ocean of money that washes through the university is yeah. tiny. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So uh, that's a uh, yeah. Okay, so. Three questions to close out. So I, I love this question. There's a very interesting observation buried in it that I'm going to flesh out. So Shane Tucker asks, I've been told by the chancellor of a large university that the increase, you know, we talked about the radical, you know, sort of radical ongoing increase in tuition faster than inflation uh, over time as a result of the increase in needs-based grants, right? And so in other words, you know, you, you have more and more students as you've been diversifying the student base in, in lots of ways over the last 30, 40 years, you have more and more students showing up who's, who can't afford to pay. You know, so as a consequence, you need to sort of charge the, the, the kids who can actually pay, the parents who can actually pay more because they're, they're sort of covering the tuition costs of the, of the parents who yeah. can't. So, so, so the result, right, the result of more, the need, more needs-based grants basically means high, higher tuition. If this is correct, are there any alternative models for student financial aid that help offset this income? Now, what, what I find interesting about this question is there's an assumption buried in there that I, I wonder if the chancellor of the university even, <laughs> even would, would realize is buried in there. Okay, so let's walk through the logic chain. Uh, the increase in tuition is a result of the increase in needs-based grants. Well, the increase in tuition, like, okay, the increase in tuition, tuition is the, is the payment. But the, 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 the tuition also, like, there's the need as much for the grant if tuition wasn't so good. Bye. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's exactly right. So you've got a you've got a snake eating its tail thing here. Yeah, yeah. Where if the cost of the education is high, then the needs based grants are high. Then the the money needed for that is high, which means the 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 what you need to charge for tuition is high. It's higher. And it, it's it's yeah. it higher, right? And so it's a it's a snake eating its tail, or in economic terms, it's a doom loop where like you run this enough, and this this is part of the dynamic that leads to the you know tuition heading to a million dollars. Yeah. You know, which which is where it's happening. And so yeah, so Ben, this this like really this really begs the question just give, given given this is another example of sort of one of these one of these sort of dysfunctional loops that people yeah. sometimes find themselves in like how do you like what what would be our like top recommendation for like breaking the current model of both tuition and of student financial aid yeah i i just think it's a hundred percent a cost structure issue and you know as we talked about previously it's not that long ago when college was very when, when i was a graduate 
tuition was, and I want to remember this right, but it was like $1,500 a quarter. It was like on that order. I can't remember exactly because I remember I made $1,000 a month as a, as a kind of a research assistant in the, and that was enough to pay tuition easily and cover, you know, other stuff. So the fact that it's gone inflated this fast and furiously is just, you know, bananas. And when you look under the covers at like what all the money is going to, it's insane. Your it's the, the much of it is not, you know, necessary. And if you redesign the curriculum and apply technology and you know, use AI for administrative tasks and in these kinds of things, like I think you could greatly reduce the costs. I mean, they like if the professors are the essential thing, there's just not very many of them compared to, you know, the the kind of the the overall cost of the university. So I think that the you know that's the only way to deal with it. Like I, you know, and I look, I think that probably, you know, the the financial aid, the needs-based grants are really important because otherwise you're in this like crazy, insane debt situation that, you know, that we get into. So, which is also caused by the outrageous costs. So I, I, I just think the cost of university is so completely out of control at this point that the, you, you have to start there. So let's go to the then a related the related second to last question on 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 finances and we talked about this some last time but there's, there's a very good question that came across that we should hit directly. So Joaquim Wernerson asks, can you please dig a little deeper into the endowments and how they are primarily utilized and earmarked by the university? And I'll just I'll highlight that he included a key term in there of earmark, which we should talk about. But yeah, Ben, like what's what's the for people who don't really for people who have a vague idea that these universities have a giant pool of money in their endowments, like what does that actually mean? Well, and. There's a giant difference, I think, between it's like the top 10 or 15 endowments and the rest. So there's, and let me talk about it because I, I probably know that the very large endowments better, but the big endowments are really big. So like, you know, if you get into the largest ones, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, I mean, these things are on the order of 30, 40, $50 billion. I mean, it's, they're big. Uh, a lot of the money in the endowment has been given for a specific purpose. So the biggest donations that you get, so somebody's gonna give you a hundred million dollars um, to your university, which is kind of those, and there are more of those donations than you might think, um, and they are kind of the, a huge portion of the endowment funding are these very large grants. There are almost none of those that are, this is to general fund, <laughs> they're always, put my name on that building, <laughs> you know, build it, you know, it's not a statue of me and, you know, library and, and these kinds of things. So pe people like get very specific things. They also, you know, at the next level down, there's things like I'm going to endow a professor. So like, here's a chairman of the data science department at my alma mater because I think data science is really important and we need to recruit somebody really good. So I'm going to donate $10 million and that's going to kind of pay for like the best of the best in that field or something like that. And then, you know, kind of on down and then even, you know, a lot of the smaller grants, you know, people are like, well, 
you know, I want scholarships for Hispanic kids or I want, you know, like, so, so a lot of this, you know, a lot of the endowment is earmarked, um, you know, the general, you know, the things that go to the general fund can be used for anything. A lot of it goes to administration, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, and, it's, you know, some goes to operating costs, you know, anything that kind of university needs to kind of make the budget close. But the big endowments all have an obligation to kind of deploy money into the operating costs of the university. And a lot of that, by the way, does go to needs-based aid, you know, because the, you know, that, that's where that comes from. And so if you don't have a big endowment, then that needs-based aid kind of really kicks up the tuition for the other side. And so, yeah, the two the two key things I think are important for people to understand, you, you highlighted these, but I'll just I'll pull them out. So one is the endowment thing is really only a thing for the top institutions. Most most colleges, universities don't have significant size endowments. And yeah. so they, they, they don't have they don't have which is significant because they don't have a buffer to fall back on. Right. So they, they you know, they have to they have, they have to run a balanced budget. Right. Be, they, 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 yeah. they can't, you know, and, and by the way, that, that, you know, on the one hand, you might say maybe they can be more disciplined that way. On the other hand, they're, they're actually a lot more vulnerable to going under. And, you know, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of kind of smaller tier two, three, four institutions who actually, they do go away. And there, there, are, there is sort of a wave of bankruptcy. I think the whole junior college system is under extreme duress right now. Yeah, that's right. And then second is even the large endowments, the money's not sitting there to be deployed by the uh, president of the university, however he wants, or to make up for shortfalls in other in parts in parts of the business. You know, most of that money uh, in the typical case is actually earmarked and and for as you said, for specific programs and can't be used uh, for for general buffer. And, so, and this is the thing about the large institutions that I think is actually quite 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 interesting. And if I were on the board of one, I'd be quite distressed by, which is like the the amount of resilience in 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 the, in, the, in terms of like the amount of financial buffer and the endowment that can be used to you know sort of compensate for breakage in the core model is actually not that big. After you take out the earmarks, it's not that much money relative to the operating cost budgets now that these places have. And so I think even the large institutions are closer to the edge financially yeah. than, than than a lot of people think, especially of course if there's any withdrawal of federal funding. Yeah, no, that, that, that's that would, for sure. Yeah, right. that would man a withdrawal of federal funding would be such a earthquake and shock to the system. It's a little scary to even think about because the knock-on effects would be so, it'd be so fast. Yeah. Okay. So then the, the final question, and that you're, you know, you're well-suited to answer this, if you'd like, is Evan J. Zimmerman asks, what is the proper role of trustees? It seems like a lot of these problems that we've discussed happen under the nose of people who are supposed to provide oversight. Let me let me start by making a claim, Ben, and see what you think of this. I resemble that remark. So for those of you who didn't see the prior episodes, Ben was on the board of uh, Columbia some years back and uh, so has hands-on experience with this question. So, uh, so look, I would start by saying the following and see if you agree or disagree with this, which is, you know, I'm, I'm coming up on now 30 years of experience being on boards and companies, public and private. Like, I'm just watching a lot of companies and knowing a lot of uh, companies um, and knowing a lot of boards um, over time. I mean, I probably, it's, I don't know, if I've met with hundreds of boards at this point uh, in one context or another. I just don't think in general, I don't think like for companies, I don't think boards, the, the, the structure of board actually doesn't work very well. And the reason is just is because the presumption is you have a committee of board members overseeing an executive. The CEO, and you know who's gonna who's gonna be more effective at you know sort of managing situations, the executive or the committee? It's almost always the executive. And then, by the way, where does the committee get its information? It gets its information from the executive. And so, corporate boards, you know, they they, they function as well as you could imagine part time committees functioning, but just like that in general is just actually not that good. And so, and I and I just say that again. I have been on a lot of boards. I've been, as you said, I, I resemble that remark also. 
And it's just like, look, like ultimately it's a question of the, it's a, it's the, the fate of companies is much more a question of who the executive, who the chief executive is and what they do than, than what the board does just due to the basic nature of, of leadership, you know, for better and for worse for uh, nonprofit boards and university boards specifically, uh, you know, the problem I would say appears to me at least to be even more intense, which is uh, just as a consequence of the, you have more constituencies and in particular, so now you have a committee of the board of trustees, you have an executive in the form of the president of the university, but then you have the other constituencies and components of the institution, specifically the faculty, as well as the students and the alumni and the donors and, 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 and so it like, <laughs> let's put it this way, it, it's easy to criticize uh, a board of trustees university for being like, it, it's easy to criticize them for their faults as individuals or as a group of people. It's somewhat harder and maybe equally important to kind of think about just structurally, does that even work? Like, could, could, can we even expect that structure to function and generate the, 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 the outcomes that people think they want? Anyway, let me, let me use that as a setup and see what you think. Yeah, I, I think generally not. I think, you know, in a crisis, they can kind of do what Harvard did and, and remove the president. But look, the, the, the university trustee thing is actually more difficult than the corporate thing because, first of all, the boards of trustees are very large compared to corporate boards. So Columbia, by charter, was 24 people, and that was a small trustee committee. Secondly, the, the, a huge function of the trustees is to raise money. So a big reason you're on the board of trustees is because you have money or like can go get money. And so like that's a big part of the function. And then, you know, like nobody is, it's somebody's job to be a trustee. It's kind of everybody who is a trustee, most people have jobs or they're retired. And, you know, as you know, from corporate boards, there's issues with both of those. The people who have jobs, you know, often sitting CEOs and these kinds of things are just too busy. They could do it. They could drop down into the university and figure stuff out, but they don't have time. And, they, and there's, no, there's just no way they could have that kind of time. And then the people who are retired are, look, they're retired. They're, they're much older. You know, they're not there to fight a political battle. They're there to do a victory lap in you know, many ways and so forth. And then, the, you know, like there's another problem which you kind of alluded to, which, you know, it's always an easy thing to say. It's like, you know, what the hell are the trustees doing? You know, what are they doing? And it, it kind of reminds me of, I probably shouldn't bring this up, but my friend Kanye, like every time he gets, you know, anything goes wrong with him, it's like, what are the people around him telling him? And I'm like, okay, Kanye is like truly, truly a genius is supremely confident and is massively successful. Nobody's telling that guy anything, especially like if he's going off the rails, like, you know, or, or doing something that people don't like, like he's not listening to the people around him. So you can't blame whoever it is, Dancy or Sakai or like any of his friends. Cause like they, they can't tell him to stop. He is the kind of supreme powerful person in that, in that circle. And that is true with the university president as well, where, like they're running things, they're in it day to day, they know every detail of what's going on. And so you can say, hey, like, I think this whole like, you know, thing with anti-Semitism is getting out of control. And they go, no, 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 no. Like these are college kids. They protest. This is how it goes. They've protested, you know, since like the 60s, they've been doing this. Come on. And you go, well, I guess they know, you know, and then they'll bring in their experts. You know, they, they have experts that'll tell you and so forth. So you're not really in position to do it until it gets so bad 
you know, or you have like Bill Ackman, you know, chewing your leg off where, you know, the trustees feel like if they don't act, there's going to be some other thing that's even worse than overriding the president. And that's just very rare. I mean, I'm thinking, you, you, you know, that university presidents are generally only fired when there's massive outside pressure. I can't think of one where the internal trustees were like, this is effed up, let's do something. It's always, okay, now it's on the front page of the New York Times. Now, you know, somebody's going berserk. Now there's a protest. Okay, now we have to do something. And I, I just think it's set up that way. You, you know, like, like there's just not really room to corral 24 or 40 people together to all agree to override somebody who's doing it full time. So maybe there's a good closing note, which is a lot of what we've discussed. The theme of a lot of our discussions over the, these three episodes has been, you know, it's it's really easy and by the way, sometimes appropriate to criticize individuals. But, uh, you know, the, the, these things are also systems and the systems are designed in a certain way. They've evolved in a certain way. Yeah. They run in a certain way. The incentives within the system are laid out a certain way. And the, the individuals involved are wrapped up in the system, you know, just like the rest of us are wrapped up in the systems we're wrapped up in. And so when we think about topics like reform or change or crisis or whatever, you know, the, our, our suggestion for people thinking about this and still listening after all this time is basically th- th- think in terms of systems because the, the, the problem is probably more rooted in the system as opposed to the individuals than you think. And the solution would require change in the system, which, you know, m- which may or may not be possible. Oh, hundred percent. And by the way, look, Claudine Gay was a product of that system and, you know, and then how it all unraveled was a product of that system. I a hundred percent agree, which yeah. kind of goes back to the beginning of the conversation, which is if you wanted to change it, and you were hiring the president, you would want a president who was capable of basically tearing down and redesigning the entire system because it's not just good leadership that that will not get it done. Okay, great. Thank you all for bearing with us. Hopefully you enjoyed it and we will be back soon on another topic. Okay, thank you so much. 